Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program, we're joined by Ty Jones. Hello, Ty. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Ty Jones is the producing artistic director of the Classical Theater of Harlem. With the Classical Theater of Harlem, Mr. Jones has been, at times, an actor, producer, managing director, developmental director, and board chair, and I assume sometimes many or all of those things at once. Yes. Mr. Jones has also led the inaugural Uptown Shakespeare in the Park bringing free outdoor professional theater to Harlem. As an actor, he has appeared on Broadway in, among other productions, Denzel Washington's Julius Caesar and at regional theaters all over the country. We're honored to have Ty Jones with us today. Honored to be here. So how many seasons have you been with Classical Theater of Harlem and, and how did you get involved? First show that I did with them was in 2003. It was Jean Genet's The Blacks. Fortunately, I won an Obie Award for that. And under the old leadership, I think I had done 12 productions with them. And in 2009, when the financial crisis hit, it exposed our company administratively. We were about 400 grand in debt really poor, abysmal leadership as well. And we had a, a transition that was necessary. I stepped up to uh, save the company. I don't know if you guys recall, but in 2009, there were about 19,000 not-for-profits that closed their doors and just south of 100 theater companies closed their doors right around there in New York City alone. So I believed in the mission. I believed in our vision of a 21st century theater company that, that was inherent and essential uh, to his community. I believe truly that uh, theater has the capacity to change lives. And it was important for me to do that type of theater that reflect the diversity of ideas and racial tapestry that I think America is. Or, uh, it's the America that I want to see. So yeah, I essentially became both the board chair and the producing artistic director in 2009. So you took over the helm at a historically challenging time, particularly for not-for-profits that depend so much on corporate donations and, and benefactors who were squeezed. Yeah, you hit it on the head. We're dependent upon foundations and government, but I really truly believe that in order for organizations like ours to become sustainable ones is that there more than likely needs to be another way of generating revenue, whether that's a, a holiday show like Christmas Carol is for a number of regional theaters or if you're a dance company, Nutcracker, or uh, building an, an educational apparatus. That's what we're working on right now. We're in the midst of that right now. So I hope that we become like a template for small theater companies because I believe that in order for theater to have some sort of sustainability, we've got to create a middle class of theaters. If we're successful in doing that, then all these folks who go to these graduate programs will have actual places to go and work. Because I am of the mind that one of the worst places that you can go to for, for theater is New York City. If you want to get a job, uh, most likely you'll need to get a Broadway job because it's the only job that will afford you to stay in the city. And there are only so many Broadway jobs. But, you know, there are cities that I think you could be a working actor like uh, Minneapolis or Chicago, uh, Austin. There, there are places. And, and I think that that needs to spread across the United States. There needs to be several places like that where when one finishes school, they know they have a number of options to become a working actor. I'm totally intrigued by what you're saying, and I can, couldn't agree more. And it sounds to me like you're talking about a second regional theater movement. Essentially. To do that, it, I'll be straight with you, it's not sexy. I mean, essentially what I want to do, the vision is to create the next great American theater company. But in doing so, it's about being sustainable. That's it. And that's not a sexy thing to tell funders. <laughs> hey, we want to be a sustainable company, you know? <laughs> that, you know, people love to hear the big words of the day about diversity and inclusion and how they're going to do that and stuff. 
stuff, but it's who we are at our core. So it is. It's about sustainability. How do we make sure that we're around for the next two or three generations? So we're constantly creating jobs and, and fantastic art and hopefully uh, having an impact on this world in some way. You hinted at one idea, which was the project that you might affectionately call the Cash Cow Project, which really uh, is a kind of a pejorative, but it, it points towards the, the service that theater provides, whether it's an educational service or whether providing popular entertainment that there's great demand for. Well, you mentioned right. the Christmas show, for example. I, I like the, when you said, you know, sometimes it sounds like a pejorative. I think that comes from a lot of folks who get a little bit elite about theater. But the truth is, people who do theater that, in, in my world, we call it Chitlin Circuit, so, sort of the stuff that Tyler Perry does, mm -hmm. that sort of irreverent type of theater. The truth is, those things sell out. And for some reason, it brings joy to that, that audience. I believe that those are valid theater goers just like anybody else who wants to go and see, you know, something at the RSC. So as long as we can make sure that we're all part of that conversation of what it is to be in the same room and see people connecting, I personally... My own subjective lens favors theater that is somehow linked to social and cultural change or, or, or evolution or identity and, and lends itself to some authenticity. That's me. But I actually think it's absolutely 100% okay that, uh, you know, my mama prayed for me type stuff. I'm okay with that. So on the one hand, you're articulating a vision for the future and theater not only for today's audience, but, but also where you would like to see theater going in the future. And on the other hand, we're talking about the classical theater of Harlem. Classical mm -hmm. theater, by definition, has its roots in the past. So how do you... Great question. I, I like to say that I like to dust off the classics a bit. So yeah, we'll do those plays by Shakespeare, Ibsen, Chekhov, Shaw, Congreve, Sheridan, all that stuff. But I believe that there are plays out there that if given the test of time, they indeed will become future classics. So we actually have a reading series called Future Classics. I feel by doing that, that gives us the space to also do new plays, as well as you know those by Shakespeare. What are some examples of some future classics that you've either done or are about to do? So there was a play called One Night in Miami. I worked with the writer on, he was part of our Future Classics reading series that premiered in 2013 at, in Los Angeles at a small theater called the Rogue Machine Theater. It had a clean sweep with reviews. There wasn't one bad review. I went and worked on that play with the hope of putting in my sweat equity to get it done at Classical Theater of Harlem. And this play includes music by Sam Cooke. A character sings just a cappella, a couple bars of some of his songs. Well, the people who essentially own Sam Cooke's estate heard about it, came to see the show. I think they were ready to do a cease and desist. And they saw how amazing the show was, got in touch with the author, and they were like, we want to help uh, get this play to Broadway. Uh -huh. And that was one of the plays that... Still stings a bit that I wish we could have uh, gotten on our stage. Uh, a writer, Dominique Mariso, she has a play called Skeleton Crew that actually is now starting to really get some regional attention. I could go on and on, but uh, there, there are a number of plays out there that I think are about to take off. Well, you said you've, we've identified that you've worn a lot of hats, but I think that you definitely have arrived as a producer when you start to have war stories about ones that got away. <laughs> yeah. I've come to approach the world of, of theater very, very differently. And I think that it would behoove actors to be able to sort of understand how all of this gets put together. So I, I've actually have been asked to speak on several occasions at schools and graduating classes on the business of theater, because no matter how hard they think graduate school is, hmm. hitting the pavement, actually trying to get a job is infinitely harder. Oh, yeah. Amen. Are you still acting? Yeah, I am. I don't know if you've ever heard of a television show on Stars Network called Power. Yep. I have a recurring role on that show. Um, and this past summer, we did the Scottish play, and I played the guy. I played Mackers. 
I don't know if you had a chance to see any of the reviews. Uh, we had a half-page review in the New York Times. Oh, no, they were fantastic. The audience, our attendance was the highest it's ever been. Donations, the highest there it's ever been. So, you know, we're trying to create the Uptown Shakespeare in the Park here in Harlem. And I think we have some good momentum. So um, I'm really proud of that. That's one of the things that uh, I hope can be one of these sustainable institutions here in Harlem, uh, a destination. You've definitely come a long it, way since 2009. Uh, Thank you. The reviews for the Scottish play were fantastic, and I believe that you are going to spend some time talking about the Scottish King with us. Yeah, Ty Jones, you played the famous Scottish King in a critically acclaimed production, and you've chosen to share with us a piece from that play. The piece that you've chosen is from Act 1, Scene 7, the famous If It Were Done speech. Can you give us some background about what's going on in the play and, and, and what leads into this speech? Sure. So this is the part where Macbeth is essentially equivocating. He's trying to figure out whether or not this is the right thing to do. Kill Duncan, the king, to ascend to the throne or not. Take the, the golden opinions he have been thrust upon him and he should accept those as is and, and do nothing to tempt fate, essentially. So he's going back and forth. It's all, I, I kind of feel like it's almost as to be or not to be speech in a way. What I really love more than anything about this speech is, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a parallel here. I hope this makes sense. So Martin Luther King, whenever people think about famous speeches, I think it's fair to say that most folks recall the I have a dream speech. And if anyone does any research on King's speeches, I am willing to bet that they will come to the conclusion that the I have a dream speech was actually a mediocre speech at best. You put them up against his other speeches. In Macbeth, I think the most popular speech, uh, arguably, is tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Yet, I think that it's a distraction to some of the truly powerful statements that this play makes. And it's in this particular speech. So Macbeth says, but in these cases, we still have judgment here that we but teach bloody instructions, which being taught, return to plague the inventor. Mm -hmm. I think that is probably the sole reason why I wanted to choose this play. I think that Macbeth is Shakespeare's most politically significant play. And I think that we are in some politically significant times. And if I were to translate what I just said in sort of the in 1960s, that that right there is the chickens coming home to roost speech or comment that was made by Malcolm X. That's a very compelling introduction. I'm really looking forward to hearing these words. Shakespeare wrote to comment on the ruling class. And I think what's happened and trust me, I, I there are a lot of folks who do not share the same opinion that I have about this. I think what's happened is that we approach acting and theater itself in terms of plot, motivation, and character. And I don't think necessarily that those are sufficient to really look at some of these classic plays. They're beyond, you know, what a character is feeling or their motivations. We don't know if Macbeth had an alcoholic father or anything like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, all the trust. method stuff kind of goes out the window. And, um, and then if you think about how Shakespeare even put the story together, he borrowed from here, he borrowed from there to put this story together. And talking about King James and all these other things that when we try to parry it down to these sort of individuals and talk about uh, Macbeth as just this sort of individual in the world, I think we miss the overall message. It gives, I think that Shakespeare is great because it can give one a, a deep appreciation on how language was used centuries ago to comment on the ruling class, that many of the problems that plagued the human condition years ago still plague us today. 
But today we like to just see some famous person play a particular role or a pretty person play Romeo and things like that. And I think that's what's, that's the distraction to the real language itself. And my one thing that I point to to support my argument are literally the tens of thousands of books that are written on Shakespeare. You know, we're talking about something that is meant to be dramatized. It's not supposed yes. to, I mean, in my opinion, it's not meant to just have a, a, an academic way in which we approach this language. And I think that's where we've gotten lost. I think that's why, um, you know, younger audiences are, are tough on Shakespeare because they don't relate to it. And I think the once you get into the poetry and you share the poetry with them. I'll give you an example. So when I'm talking to young kids about Shakespeare, you know, how do I get it to, to relate to them? And th th this is what I do. So I'll say something like, all right, you could uh, talk to this girl over here and you could say something like, hey, you kiss really well. Or you could say something like, you have witchcraft in your lips. Right. You, know? <laughs> you know, but it's these kinds of things. And, and they respond to that because their, their world is filled with music and, and, and that sort of entertainment. I, I believe that if you're able to find ways to take this poetry and flow it into the same exact way that kids, you know, absorb their information, you start seeing, you know, Shakespeare language just speaks directly to these kids. And, um, and I'm okay with cutting the, the play. I'm okay with, you know, cutting certain words out. And anyone who lives in that world where, you know, they tend to be precious about the language, I get it. We just happen to look at it differently. I think there's room for it all. But I think for me, I think that, you know, when it becomes sort of an academic exercise and academics plug themselves into Shakespeare for reasons other than its dramatic power, I think it can crush the potency of Shakespeare's message and its language. I think Garrett and I have started the state of Shakespeare with that in mind, that Shakespeare is, yeah. is meant to be performed, is meant to be heard. And I think it's a great opportunity right now for you to perform that speech for us. All right, put me on the spot. Yeah, uh, of I, course. Um, this is Ty Jones reading Macbeth, Act 1, Scene 7. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success, oh, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all here, but here, upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. But... In these cases, we still have judgment here, that we but teach bloody instructions, which being taught, return to plague the inventor. This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. He's here in double trust, first, as I am his kinsman and his subject, strong both against the deed, then as his host, who should, against his murderer, shut the door, not bear the knife myself. Besides, this Duncan hath borne his faculties so meek, hath been so clear in his great office, that his virtues will plead like angels, trumpet-tongued against the deep damnation of his taking off, and pity like a naked newborn babe striding the blast, or heaven's cherubim horsed upon the sightless couriers of the air, shall blow the horrid deed in every eye that tears shall drown the wind. I have no spur to prick the sides of my intent, but only vaulting ambition, which o'erleaps itself and falls on the other side. Thank you. Wow, thank you. So, Ty, I have so many questions about this, but the first one 
We just spoke with some ladies who are doing this play, Macbeth, up at the Hudson Shakespeare Festival, and we spent a lot of time talking about that last sentence, I have no spur to prick the sides, mm-hmm. and we ended up talking about what is the other, and yeah. one of them said it's the other side, and you just added that word. Yeah, I added side. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen, um, yeah, I've, I've actually seen some where they have side, some don't. So right, that's it works for me. It worked for me in the production. It's that simple. Right. Um, no, I get it. Because it is it, uh, you what is the other sides of my intent but only, you know, so it worked for me. But right. go ahead. I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's totally fine. It was it's great because we, you know, we talked about it and that is essentially what Maria Cristina Oliveras was talking about. She was saying that it's like falls on the other side, like and I still say the other side of what? Uh, the other side yeah, of ambition. I, I think for me it's a uh, Imagine you are balanced in what you're doing. And, and I think that at this point, he was still a balanced human being, right? And now he won't be if he leans to one side or the other. He's going to be in, in imbalance. Yeah. Again, I wouldn't lay on it for too long because it's meant to be dramatized. Right. And when there have been times where I've actually seen like and falls on the other and then there's a dash, and he's immediately interrupted by Lady M. I've seen that version as well, too. Right, he doesn't get to finish. When it's on its thought. feet, it works either way. Right, it absolutely. That's when he comes in and is like, where have you been, you know? And he gets out of wherever he is, and he needs to explain himself and, and become, instead of this guy who's sort of equivocating back and forth and trying to figure this thing out, he becomes somebody who just makes a sound, uh, a strong decision, and says, you know, we will proceed no further in this business. He becomes the soldier again. Right. He has to, you know, think on his feet. You can't sit around and act like a little lieutenant who thinks that they can um, reason their way into battle. Sometimes you just got to go and and shoot. And make a choice. Yep, make a choice. And so, yes, I'm absolutely in agreement with you that, you know, you can play it in multiple ways, but as long as you are super clear in your brain what you're playing and you can make it work, then go for it. Yep. So you were earlier, Ty, you were mentioning about in our version lines 8 to 10, which is that we but teach bloody instructions, which being taught return to plague the inventor. Can you parse that out for us, what you think that means, what he's talking about there? Yeah, I really, truly believe it. It is uh, the chickens will come home to roost. We, If I could, you know, I know this may be a bit controversial, but why not? I think if we look at uh, United States foreign policy is a perfect example. We will unilaterally go into a sovereign nation and take their resources. And this is, you know, a holdover of manifest destiny. So what, what happens when generations down the line and you have adversely affected an indigenous people and they are left with nothing to lose? Why should we be surprised if they strike back? Right. So he's saying that his actions, if he takes the actions that he's thinking of taking, somewhere down the line, he's going to pay for it. Oh, yeah. And he does it within, you know, two hours of this play. <laughs> he certainly does. <laughs> and it's funny because is that like a premonition in terms of because the witches do say that. And I think the witch I think that's what's beautiful about this play, right? Some folks, you know, see the witches. I, the way we had our witches, we actually did a coven of witches. Instead of the three witches, we actually did a coven. And and the way we backed it up is that in his text there is a comment. Uh, when the witches are chant- chanting, and I believe it's something about thrice to thine and thrice again to make up nine or something like that. Mm-hmm. So we use that as the fuel behind having nine witches on stage. And these witches essentially orchestrated the world, if you will. So so we got to play with it a bit. Is it fate? Was it just choice? You know, I don't know what the perfect answer is, but I think that as human beings, we can be co-creators in our own destiny. Do I think we live in a simulation? I'm not going to go that far. You can talk to some MIT about that. But I do believe that that we do have some choice 
And yet there are things that happen that are not quite, I think, explainable. Uh, and I'm okay with not being able to explain it. So that, that's what God's all about, right? There you go. There you go. Ty, I'd like to ask you a question that my students often ask when they're approaching Shakespeare for the first time or encountering mm-hmm. classical theater for the first time. In this scene, Macbeth is alone on stage. Mm-hmm. And my students would say, well, as the actor, who, who am I talking to? What answer would you have for I would simplify it for them. I want them to think of themselves in their own rooms when they're talking to themselves. I do it all the time. Take a particular thing that's troubling and, and, and talk my way through it. Or what are, what's my answer going to be to X, Y, and Z? I, I think it's as simple as that. It's an internal monologue. I think that as an actor to approach it, I would have simply approached it as someone who is by themselves with a dilemma talking themselves through it. And you definitely humanized it in your performance of it. There's no doubt about it. I, I thought it was it was a compelling performance. And I just wanted to point out one thing you did. On line 11, you said, This even-handed justice commends the ingredients of our poison chalice you held to our mm-hmm. own lips. Can you just talk about, for our listeners, that choice to do that? and what? what sure. That- when I was on my feet doing it, I looked at the entire audience. That, that's what that was, to let them know this is one of those moments where one is a co-creator in their own destiny. Great. So that's, that's what it was for me. It was making sure. I, I literally would look as many people as I can in the audience. And look, I'll be honest with you, there were nights we had 1,000 people. But there was no <laughs> looking over people's heads or up in the booth or anything. I looked down at the front row. I looked at folks you know, dead in their eyes and, you know, to, to get that you know, this, this, this sort of justice that may be within this poison chalice could actually be the thing that poisons ourselves. You know, there have been people who have made comments about sometimes the, the poison has to act as the antidote, you know, right. that's a, which basically means, you know, you know, violence begets violence. Some folks think that, no, you, you need to counteract violence with nonviolence. So I think this right here, there's a reason why it's a, he says that, that we but teach bloody instructions. Uh, that which being taught return to plague the inventor. Right. And this even-handed justice, I like that. This even-handed justice, you know, chickens coming home to roost. What's done to somebody else will probably get done back to you. Commends the ingredients of our poison chalice to our own lips. So there you go. Brings it back you might, home. You might sometimes need to punch a bully in the mouth, but um, what, at what cost? At what price? Right. Oh, there you go. Ty Jones, thank you so much for spending time talking with us today. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.